going to read Exodus 19. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people and you shall set limits for the people all around saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, There were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, Great, thank you very much. Be really helpful if you keep Exodus 19 open in front of you. Um, I was speaking at a meeting in uh, Dublin earlier this year, 
And uh, on a whim, I asked people to raise their hands if they were not living in the country where their parents were born. And the majority of hands went up. I was astonished. They were astonished. Uh, I'd been talking to people beforehand, so I had a hunch, but, you know, still, I was blown away. Most people had not, were not living in the country where their parents had been born. In many ways, our society today is more free than ever. You know, in the past, you largely, most people did, the job they did was what their father or mother had done, and the place where you lived was, most, for most people, where your mother and father had lived. You had no opportunity to move somewhere else or to do something else. But now... Now you can choose between different careers. You can change careers midway. You can live in different places. You can travel the world. We have more economic freedom, more access to education, fewer social constraints. And yet, strangely, the result is anxiety. We, we kind of don't know what to do with our freedom. We find it disorienting. You can, you can kind of be whoever you want to be. But who do you want to be? We don't know. Also, if you fail, well, you only have yourself to blame. That's, that's a lot of pressure. And here's the catch. We may have fewer social constraints, but we're still not in control of ourselves. The book of Exodus is a freedom story. God sets his people free from slavery. But the story doesn't end with chapter 15. In chapter 15, they sing a great song of celebration. They come out of Egypt, pass through the Red Sea, big song. Story's not over, but it's not, we're not even... Do the maths here. We're not, we're not even halfway through. I'm confident of that. We're not even halfway through. The point is, Israel is not only saved from something, they are saved for something. And the same is true for us. Our salvation is not just an escape from hell. Though that certainly is part of it. But it's more than that. Otherwise, we would basically kind of sign people up, as it were, and then move on. You know, come to the front, make a commitment, and then off you go. But no, we don't do that, do we? We disciple people. We involve them in the life of the church. Why? Because salvation is more than an escape from sin and death. We are saved for something. What is that? Well, the answer is to know God and to make him known. To know God and to make him known. That's certainly what we see here in Exodus 19. To know God, first of all. Look at verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Can you see the movement in this verse? 
God has brought Israel out of Egypt. That's a picture of our rescue from sin and death. But that's only half the story. God has poured his people out of slavery, but he has also brought us to something. And what is that? Myself, he says. I have brought you to myself. To the promised land? Well, yes, that's part of it. That'll come. To a kingdom of justice? Yes. But first and foremost, to God himself. Or look at verse 5. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured procession. Same same kind of movement, isn't it? Out of the nations to be my treasured possession. wonder if you have a treasured possession. I wonder how many of you have um, put your... um, When my daughter was your age, she was still taking um, uh, Bunny away on holiday with her, okay? rather sort of smelly, ratty little um, soft toy that she'd had ever since she was a child. You know that question, what would you, if your house was burning down, what's the one thing you would save? I have to say rather sadly that the answer, my answer would be my list of internet passwords, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the sensible collect. I mean, that's, that's, life would disintegrate without those, wouldn't it? But probably what I ought to say is uh, my wife's got this old suitcase that she's just filled with mementos from our daughter's childhood. We call it our keepsake box. So that's probably what I ought to say. God's treasured possession is you and me, his people. And he entered the fire to rescue us. That's what took place at the cross. Jesus entered the fire of divine judgment to rescue his treasured possession. You. We are saved so that we can know God. Well, look at verse 9. God says to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. You see there God's presence I'm going to come to you. God is going to be present among his people. In verses later on, verse 18, verse 20, he says, the Lord descended. The Lord comes down in person to be with his people. But also notice that God speaks. The people are are encamped on the plain of Sinai with the mountain in front of them. It's kind of set up. So almost like the mountain is the stage. And the plain is the auditorium. Also that the people can hear God speak. And he literally speaks. Much of, the, uh, of all the instruction and the laws that we hear of in Exodus are given through Moses. But the Ten Commandments are boomed out across the plain. They hear the voice of God. When um, uh, Moses reminds them of it in, uh, in Deuteronomy, he says, if you saw no form... Uh, you saw no form. There was only a voice. There is a voice of God ringing out across the plain. They knew he was near because they heard his voice. Uh, there's more. Look at verse 19. It's a puzzling little verse. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. Full stop. 
Now, what's, what's odd there is we're not told what they said. We're just told that Moses spoke and God answered him. I think the point is not just that God spoke, not just that there's a voice, but there's a conversation. There's to and fro. We are saved for a relationship with God. A two-way relationship of give and take, of speaking and listening. It doesn't mean that you should expect to hear voices in your head or direct messages of guidance. God speaks through his word. When we read the Bible and when we hear it preached, it's not just that God spoke in the past, and then you can kind of read an account of it. As you read your Bible right now, as you hear it being preached to you right now, God himself is speaking to you in a personal, dynamic, relational way so that his voice is heard and his presence is felt. So we are saved to know God. But we're also saved to make God known. Look at verse 6. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So Israel is to be a, a kingdom of priests, a priestly kingdom. A kingdom that as a whole kind of functions in a priestly kind of way. You know, in a way that's kind of analogous to the priests in the tabernacle. Now what did the priests in the tabernacle do? Well, they represented God to the people as they taught his word. And they represented the people to God as they offered sacrifices. So, the, so, so, so in those two kind of movements, the priests create the possibility of a relationship between God and his people, representing God to the people and the people to God. In a similar way, Israel as a nation is to be priestly. That to, Israel as a nation is to create the possibility of a relationship with God. For all the nations, God's people are to represent God to the world through mission. And they're to represent the world to God through prayer. And then also, they're described as a priestly nation, they're described as a holy, as a priestly kingdom, they're described as a holy nation. They are to be holy as God is holy. In other words, they are to reflect the character of God in the life of, that they live together, their, their life as a community, so that God is made known, the ways of God are made known to the nations. So that there's kind of one little bit, as it were, of this broken earth where people can see what God is like. Now, listen to the song that they sing in heaven right now. Revelation 5. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. This is about the Lord Jesus, of course. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Why did Jesus die? Why was his blood spilt? Well, there are two reasons in that song. 
The first is he died to purchase people from every nation for God. For a relationship with God. For speaking and listening. For loving and being loved. For God's presence. So that we might know God. But second, Jesus died so that we might be a priestly kingdom. (coughs) Making God known to the nations. It's the language of Exodus 19. Like Israel, we, you, are to represent God to the world through mission. And you're to represent the world to God through prayer. Now what encouragement that is to pray. Particularly to pray for mission. We are saved, says the song of heaven, from every nation. Why? For every nation. Jesus died so that you could be a missionary. Do you realize that? You don't become a missionary by doing mission. It's not some sort of title that you achieve. You become a missionary through the cross. Jesus died so that we might be a kingdom of priests representing God to the world and the world to God. So being a missionary is not the preserve of a select few. It's the identity of every Christian, of every Christian in this room. The only real questions are where and how. We are saved to know God and we are saved to make God known. These words that we meet here in in Exodus 19, they're, they're a kind of preface to the law. We're about to get the Ten Commandments in chapter 20. We are called to be a holy nation, and the law tells us what that looks like. The Ten Commandments have, are, are missional. They, they are to kind of shape our life in such a way that we can then display the character of God, display the goodness of God. So let me just take one example. Have a look at the third commandments. That's John chapter 20, verse 7. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. It's literally, you shall not bear the Lord's name falsely. It's not so much about not swearing. Not that I'm in favor of swearing, by the way. Really, what it is, it's a call not to bear God's name in a way that damages his reputation. God has already said that through the Exodus, he has proclaimed his name. One of the reasons for the Exodus is that his name might be proclaimed throughout the earth, that everyone might see that he is Lord as he defeats the gods of Egypt. It's a display of his character and purposes. And now God, as it were, is passing on that role to us. To you, if you're a Christian, then you carry Christ's name clue in the word Christian. Two-thirds of it is the word Christ. The people in your street, in your workplace, know that you go to church, almost certainly. So whether you like it or not, they see you as a representative of Christ. You bear the name of Christ. What What they think of you 
will shape what they think of Christ. The question is, are you going to bear his name truly or falsely? Does your character reflect his character? Or, by the way, when you fail, as I'm sure you will, does the way you respond to that reflect the grace of Christ? Or do you reinforce everyone's prejudices about hypocritical religious nutters? The message of Jesus was, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. Now, here's the problem with that. Most people do not think the kingdom of God is good news. We went out onto the streets of uh, Newcastle and we said, got some great news for you. You're not in control of your life. Jesus is. People are not going to hear that as good news. They think that's the worst possible news. Our job is to so live under the rule of Christ, so to display his character, that people believe that it is good to know God. It's as if, as I said, in, at Mount Sinai, God was kind of marking out one nation, one little area in the world where it could be seen, where people could see that his rule is a good rule that brings life and freedom. And in the same way, your local church, your home, your desk at work, perhaps, is this kind of little oasis in this graceless world where the goodness of God can be seen. So we are saved to know God and to make him known. But there's a problem, a massive problem. A relationship with God is not straightforward because God is holy. God cannot be approached lightly. So in verse 10, for example, God tells Moses, go to the people and consecrate them. Don't know a lot about what that involved, but it involved washing your clothes and abstaining from sex. There must be consecration. And there must be limits. Look at verse 12. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. Wow. Do you notice the little phrase there? Do not approach. Now, in verse 4, God has said, I have brought you to myself. I have brought you to myself. Do not approach. It's a bit of a mixed message, isn't it? Those limits are a kind of safety barrier. Uh, earlier this year, my wife and I visited a little village called Staves on the uh, uh, coast of Yorkshire. And it's a sort of little village kind of perched as the um, land drops down into the sea, it's perched on this sort of cliff, really. And there's this house where there's been a landslide, and the house is kind of still there, but half of the land underneath it has just disappeared. So this house is kind of balanced, really, on the edge of the uh, cliff. And as you might imagine, some uh, well-intentioned person has put barriers around it and a big sign saying, caution, danger, as if you couldn't 
spot the danger for yourself, you know. And that's what we have here, a kind of safety barrier, reinforced with these words of warning, danger, do not enter. God wants his people to recognize the seriousness of this warning. Have a look at verses 20 to 21. Have a little bit of sympathy with Moses for a moment. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up and the Lord said to him, go down. Now, we don't know for sure what the location of Mount Sinai is, but our best guess is that it's a mountain that is 7,000 feet tall. But don't worry, the plain of Sinai is, is an altitude of 5,000 feet. So Moses only had to go 2,000 feet. That's still quite a lot. What are the mountains of Morn? They're meters. They're about that. It's about 2,000 from the sea, isn't it? It's about that. So he has to climb, climb up to the top. By the way, remember... He's 80 years old at this point. So he climbs 2,000 feet, gets to the top. God says, go down. Go down and warn the people so they do not force their way to see the Lord and many of them perish. Oh, fair enough, you might think. Except that, as Moses points out, God has already told them that in verse 12. You see that? Let me let's just track this through. I can't find it now. Verse 21. So Moses went up and the Lord said to him, go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, otherwise the Lord will break out of them. Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai because you've yourself warned us. Put limits around the mountain and set it apart. It's holy, you've already told us this. Verse 24, the Lord replied, go down and bring Aaron up with you, but the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord, or he will break out against them. That's the problem. That's the threat. He might break out against them. In other words, what, what, what's going on there is God is reinforcing that this is not some symbolic thing going on here. There is a real and present danger. God will break out against them. It's as if the holiness of God is nuclear. You know, if you approach a nuclear reactor, you've got to put on protective clothing, and even then you can't come too close. And in the same way, if people are to approach God, they must be prepared through consecration, and even then they can't come too close. God wants a relationship with his people, but God is dangerously holy. For a sinful person to approach God is like putting tissue paper into a fire. And look at how the people experience the presence of God. In verse 16, we read that there is thunder and lightning and thick cloud and a trumpet blast. And then it says, everyone in the camp trembled. What's it like to have God come down and be with you? You tremble. And actually, the people are trembling with fear because the mountain itself is trembling. Or if you jump to the end of chapter 20, verse 20, verse 18, after God had spoken to them, when the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain smoke, they trembled with fear. 
And that is the right response. Chapter 20, verse 20, Moses says to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will keep you from sinning. Now, that's an odd thing to say, I think, at first sight. In effect, what Moses says is, don't be afraid, but be afraid. Don't be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will keep you from sinning. Don't be afraid, but be afraid. I think what he's saying is, don't be afraid because fear is actually the right response to God. It's that fear that will keep you loyal to God. It's that fear that will keep you from sinning. The people who should be afraid are actually the people who aren't afraid, who sort of treat God lightly because they're heading for disaster. Okay, so here's the problem. God redeems so that we can have a relationship with him, but God is dangerous, so we must keep our distance from him. God can be known and God can't be known. What's the solution? What is God's solution? I think it's a threefold solution. First of all, a mediator. At the end of chapter 20, the people, as they fear this fear, they ask Moses if he will go and speak to God on their behalf. And that's what he does. He speaks to God and he hears from God. And, and he's a role as a kind of go-between. I mean, quite literally. By my count, there are seven times when Moses either goes up the mountain or down the mountain in these chapters. Seven times. 80 years old. He's literally the go-between. So a mediator and then a covenant. Just uh, turn over with me to uh, chapter 24. In chapters 20, 21, 22, 23, God makes a covenant with his people. Covenant is a relationship-forming agreement, a bit like marriage. God commits himself to these people, and they commit to obey him. And in these chapters, we get a summary of what it means to live as God's covenant people. And then in chapter 24, the people affirm those covenant commitments. In verse 8, they say, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey they make their commitment to this covenant. So we have a mediator, we have a covenant. And then the third thing is a sacrifice. They build an altar on which they sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. And then look at verse 8 again, the, the whole of verse 8. Uh, sorry, I, I, the last one was from verse 7, sorry. Verse 8, then Moses took the blood sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that God has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now, what we discover later on is that burnt offerings were the offerings that were given in order to deal with sin. And fellowship offerings were, were the offerings that were offered to kind of express the fruit of this reconciled relationship. They, it was an act of fellowship. And so between them, the burnt offering, dealing with sin, the fellowship offering, restored relationship, capture what is happening here. God has saved his people from guilt for fellowship, from rebellion for reconciliation, from death for life, from slavery for freedom, from sin for God. 
The relationship between a holy God and a sinful humanity is made possible because the covenant makes provision for sin through sacrifice. And as we've said all the, t- all the way through, those animal sacrifices are actually just a picture and a pointer to the kind of complete, final, comprehensive solution, the Lord Jesus Christ. Just like at Passover, a day was coming when God's people would be redeemed through blood, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, what happens next? It's the most extraordinary thing imaginable. And I do not use those words lightly. It is the most extraordinary thing imaginable. Have a look at verses 9, 10, 11. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as bright blue as the sky. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate and drank. That is unbelievable. God's people, represented by the elders, eat a meal in the presence of God. What, what do you get when God mixes together a mediator, a covenant, and a sacrifice? It's his recipe for a meal. A meal in the presence of God. This is the climax of the story of the Exodus, not passing through the Red Sea. This is the climax of the story of the book of Exodus, not the Passover night. Not the Red Sea, not the defeat of the Egyptian army, not even the fireworks of Mount Sinai. This is the climax, a meal in the presence of God. But it's not just the climax of the story of Exodus, it's the climax of the story of everything, of all of history and eternity. I promised you the history of the world in five meals. In this meal, just in miniature, we see the future of the world. History comes to a climax in the feast of the Lamb when God's people will eat a meal in his presence. We will not just be in the presence of God like an audience looking on. We will be round the table like friends, like family. Imagine what it must have been like for one of those 70 elders. Verse 9 says, they went up. Now, back in chapter 19, God had said, the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord. Or he will break out against them. The limits had been set around the mountain to protect the people from God's holy presence. At some point in the procedure, each one of those elders had to step over those limits to go up the mountain. Can you imagine 
Can you imagine being one of those elders, walking up to that point and then taking that step over into the danger zone? And every step up the mountain, they must have been wondering, is this the moment when God will break out against me? I mean, I wonder if some of them are thinking, well, I'm not Moses. I'm sure my other elders, they're all righteous, godly people. But me, I know what I've done. I know the sins I've committed. Surely, surely now is the moment when God will break out against me. They go up the mountain, the mountain that was off limits, the mountains that had trembled as God descended, the mountain that was covered in cloud to hide the glory of God. And then verse 11 says, they saw God. They saw the God who walks across the skies. See how that verse 10, it says, under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as bright blue as the sky. The sky is his pavement. Sinful people are coming before a holy God, the God who might break out against them, the God who is a consuming fire. And then verse 11 says, yet God did not raise his hand against these elders, these leaders of the Israelites. Instead, what do they do? They eat and drink. This is what it's all been for. This is the epitome of divine grace, a meal in the presence of God. But here's the thing. That moment is repeated every time you share the Lord's Supper. Moses says in verse 8, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. And on the night before he died, Jesus took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Jesus makes a new covenant with his people. He's a mediator, a covenant. And it's a covenant confirmed through blood, his blood. Symbolized in wine, but about to be shed on the cross. His sacrifice will appease divine wrath and reconcile us with God. And again, it is a covenant confirmed with a meal. And it's a meal that gives us a little foretaste of the climax of the story. At the Last Supper, Jesus said, I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. One day we will feast with the Lord. This is salvation. A meal in the presence of God. This is the climax of the story. God has not changed. He wants a relationship with his people, but he is still holy, still nuclear, as it were. And people have not changed. We still need to be made holy because we're unholy. We're still in danger of God breaking out against us. 
it would make more sense for us to enter the Son than to come before the God of the universe. And yet, do you remember those words that we read from Hebrews 12? You have not come to a mountain that cannot be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpless blast or a voice, so that those who heard it begged that no word be spoken to them. The sight so terrifying, Moses said, I am trembling with fear. You have come to Mount Zion, to a joyful assembly. You have come to God. Just as Moses ascended through the clouds to the top of Mount Sinai, so Jesus has ascended through the clouds into the presence of God, into the heavenly assembly. The experience of Sinai was a, was a moment full of awe, burning mountain, a trumpet blast, the voice of God. It's been like some volcanic eruption, just, but with more drama. Maybe you wish you could have been there, except that everyone who was there just trembled with fear. But each Sunday, you come to something more wonderful. You, you, we, as we gather as God's people, we step into the heavenly congregation. There are angels standing next to you when you sing. Now, I'm not playing with metaphors there. That is literally what is happening. I know it sounds strange, but, you know, this physical world is not all there is. There's a heavenly realm that is separate from our physical world and yet connected with it. We're linked, be we're linked because we're linked to Jesus who is now in heaven. So we stand there with him. And so as we gather on earth, we are simultaneously gathering in heaven, in the presence of God. You have come to God, says verse 23. And what is the mood of this assembly? Not fear, but joy. It's a joyful assembly. The mood is so different to the mood at Mount Sinai. Why? God has not changed. People have not changed. What's changed is the mediator. Hebrews 12, 24 says, we have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Moses was a mediator, but Moses could only meet God in a dense cloud because he was himself human. He couldn't reform the people. He couldn't deal with their sin. But Jesus, Jesus is the mediator who is God, truly God and truly man, perfectly uniting God and humanity. But but more than that, the blood of Jesus deals with our sin. We have come, says the writer of Hebrews, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel was the second son of Adam and Eve. He was killed by Cain, his brother. And Abel, therefore, epitomizes the first murder 
in the world. And he epitomizes those who cry out for justice. He was the first person to be wrongly treated by another human being. And his cry, as it were, rises from the ground. And over the years, over the centuries, it has been joined by a thousand, thousand other cries of people crying out for justice. We too cry out for justice. There's a sense in which we are all able. But we are also all Cain. The brother who killed him. That cry of Abel and the million, million cries that have echoed that first cry cry out against you, against me. Because we have not treated people as we should. And so there's this din of noise and it's directed at you, at me, demanding justice. Maybe there are times, as it were, when you can hear it ringing in your ears. But listen. Listen by faith. Above the din of all that noise is the word of Jesus. And it is a better word. It is a word of reassurance. It's a word that satisfies the demands of justice. The blood of Jesus speaks a better word. The holiness of God that consumes sin consumed the body of Jesus as he hung on the tree. God broke out against his own son so that we can come to God, not in fear, but with joy. And so this morning, we come to angels, to an assembly of angels and of saints and of God himself in joyful assembly. Let me pray. Father, there are times when we hear that din of noise, when we feel our sin, when we feel the demands of justice, and we know that we are sinners, we know that we're guilty, we feel the weight of it, but we thank you that we have a better word in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a word that bids us come that we might be your people, that we might know you and make you known. Above all, that we might come and eat a meal in the presence of God. We thank you for every foretaste of that, particularly at the Lord's Supper. And we look forward to the day when that will be consummated in the, in the feast, the marriage feast of the Lamb. Help us to live as blood-bought people knowing you and making you known, confident and joyful because we're trusting in the blood of Christ. Amen. <clears throat>